0: RealFaith.org.au Just got to the point where one night I packed up our car and I drove to Goulburn. I thought, I'm just going to drive until I work out what I'm going to do with myself. Of course, Janelle thought I was suicidal and she called the crisis assessment teams and I turned around from Goulburn and came back. At that point, Janelle said, well, what do you really want to do with your life? You know, she, she understood that I was struggling with where life was going and what it all meant. And I prayed and just felt like the Lord telling me to learn to play
1: the didgeridoo and get out on the street and start playing it. Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith with Eric Scatterbo.
2: Mike Lane has played at music festivals all over the world and at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. He says the Lord led him to play the didgeridoo and he has gone on to combine it with relaxing electronic ambient sounds. We'll find out his story today. Mike Lane, welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Eric. Good to be here.
2: Glad to have you with us. Let's listen to some of that relaxing music. the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, by Mike Lane and your group called River Tribe. That's right, yeah. So we're going to get back to this unique music that you feel the Lord has kind of led you to this type of music, and it's yeah. very relaxing, as we heard. But first, we're going to find out the beginning of the Mike Lane story. Let's find out about your background. Where were you born and raised?
0: Born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, born to a, a family in Mount Waverley. My dad was an Anglican minister. Um, so we grew up in the Anglican church up until sort of my mid-teens. Um, my dad was, apart from the fact that he was a minister, he was actually an atheist. Um,
2: whoa, 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 whoa,
0: whoa. <laughs>
2: He was a minister, but he was an atheist? Yeah. How did that happen?
0: Well, I, I think back in the 60s when he studied, you know, it was, theology was more of just a field of study. Um, so what are you going to study I'll study accounting or I'll study law or, I'll, or maybe I'll study theology and so it didn't uh, matter whether you believed or not no wow not I've all.
2: heard of liberal churches that don't always believe uh, the biblical account of things and yep. kind of rationalize and spiritualize things but actually yep. being an atheist so it was just knowledge in other words
0: yes yeah it was driven by or still is uh, driven by the social agenda There was the, the social War. gospel well, yeah, Jesus as a social activist, as a as a socialist activist, kind of a a Che Guevara of sorts, you know, who would come in and bring socialist utopia to the planet and end all wars. Wow! So, Dad was active, very active in Vietnam War protests, for example. Mm-hmm. And played guitar, sort of. His playing guitar was sort of the genesis of music in our family. But he'd play a lot of Bob Dylan songs and Simon and Garfunkel type songs. And well, I was going to ask. How he influenced you, so obviously musically he did, but
2: also did his atheism slash theology influence you as well?
0: Well, we went through the religious kind of process as I grew up, so I was confirmed in the Anglican Church. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's you meet with the bishop once a week for a couple of months and learn how to say the Lord's Prayer off the top of your head, and so you get confirmed as a Christian, but you know I didn't really have any kind of active faith. I just learnt the scriptures and write answers to the questions now at we the should, confirmation ceremony.
2: We should say that there are Anglican churches that are very conservative and biblically oriented. Oh, yes, yep. But this sure. particular one that you were
0: at with your atheist father <laughs> obviously was not. No, it wasn't. Okay. No, I've I've, particularly touring with the band, we played a lot of churches, and uh, we found some very active, very on fire, Anglican congregations as well. So, no, I'm not trying to paint the the Anglican Church with that sort of religious brush. Mm -hmm. And there's people who love that High Anglican tradition as well. Mm. So, you were confirmed. Yes. So technically, that meant that you believed. Yeah. But in your heart. No, just there was no kind of active faith there, okay. I didn't even really make a connection. There wasn't the sense of being presented with the gospel and that that requiring a response. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you baptized as an infant, you know you're recognized as a Christian. you simply grow up as a Christian, mm-hmm. if you like, but that doesn't necessarily mean you've responded to the gospel message and repented yeah. of your sins and asked Christ to direct your life. So more of a cultural Christian, would you say? Yeah, yeah. Ethically? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Australia's during that period, I guess, up until maybe the mid-'70s or so, was very much a Christian culture Mm -hmm. founded on Christian principles, and almost everybody went to church. It was cultural.
2: So that's what you were doing. The other influence that your father had in your life and in your whole family is music.
0: Yeah. All of the siblings grew up playing music. My brother, Chris, is still very active, plays in a band called Ochre. They headline a lot of festivals around Australia and around the world. So it's he's a tour. professional musician? Yes, yep, makes his living playing woodwinds. And my sister has a band called Sacred Earth. It's a New Age-focused, um, yoga, meditation-focused group. Hmm. So we don't tend to agree on a... Spiritual level, but mm-hmm. that's where she's at. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're probably one of the top-selling independent artists in this country. In fact, both bands, Aroka and Sacred Earth, are both well-known. They'd be some of the top independent artists in, in this country.
2: So very successful musically, yeah. your family has yeah. gone on to be. And then when you were in school, you met somebody.
0: Yep. Well, I met the Janelle, who's uh, now my wife of 32 years. Uh, she was an active Christian. We were seventeen years old. Um, I was a red-blooded teenager, and and we're talking a Bible-oriented born-again. That's right, yeah. active Christian. Yeah. yeah. So she became a Christian through the ministry of Young Life, mm-hmm. and uh, she invited me to Young Life camps and things like that. And through the message that they were communicating at camps and their weekly meetings and all that, I took the decision to become a christian i mean the biggest motivator was um janelle said um that she was going to remain chaste till she was married and if we wanted to remain boyfriend and girlfriend i needed to become a christian and observe the same values and so i guess there was a selfish motive in there but <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take long to sort of the gospel to take hold and you know i got got fired up
2: well i mean some people would have said hey forget it i'm I'm out of here, but yep, obviously yep. you really liked Janelle. I
0: did. I did. Uh, I do, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is a correct still answer. like her a lot. <laughs> and you did look into it, and you, I'm assuming, sincerely put your faith into the Lord.
0: Yeah. Having an ana- analytical mind, you know, I tried to philosophize it out and reason it out, but in the end it was just the loving power of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. acting on my heart to motivate me to make that choice. Okay.
2: Well, let's at this point kind of fast forward. So you eventually get married. Yes. You have some children. Yes. Life is going okay. But then in the late 90s, you
0: had a bit of a personal crisis. Yes, I did. We had, at that point, we had four kids. We got six kids all up, mm-hmm. uh, four grandkids. But um, at that point, we had four. Uh, we were living in Furniture Gully and I was working as a carpenter. That's my trade. mm mm-hmm. um, just continuing this sort of continuing existential crisis of what 's the point of life mm. where am I going what 's it all mean? Kind of caught up with me and uh, led me into a slide into depression and kind of a nervous breakdown as it were i don 't know how to define it beyond that, but it was kind of a mental meltdown mm. and um how did it manifest itself? Were you able to go to work or yeah i was working I was working for a good friend at the time, but just uh, working on my own, driving a vehicle, doing repairs on vehicles at auto dealerships. And it was just kind of a downward spiral mentally. It was difficult to get through every day. And just got to the point where one night I packed up our, our car and I drove to Goulburn.
2: <laughs> just spontaneously?
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought, I'm just going to drive until I work out what I'm going to do with myself. And, um, of course, Janelle thought I was suicidal and... Hmm called the cat team the crisis assessment teams and the police were notified everything else I turned up I I turned around from Goulburn and came back so I kind of went missing for two days and so sort of from that point began my recovery you know there was an intervention from the crisis assessment team they kind of um, assessed me and said look you're not in any imminent danger but you need to seek help in terms of depression and Get some counseling and this sort of thing. So I did that. And um, at that point, Janelle said, well, what do you really want to do with your life? You know, she she understood that I was struggling with where life was going and what it all meant. And I prayed and just felt like the Lord telling me to learn to play the didgeridoo and get out on the street and start playing it.
2: Wow. Of all the things (laughs) that I've heard that help somebody get out of depression – Playing the didgeridoo is probably not the most common
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
2: <laughs> had you played the didgeridoo before? I mean, no, where did this come from? No,
0: I hadn't even played a wind instrument or anything before. So, Really? I'm a bass guitarist by trade. and But I did the problem at the time is I didn't own any didgeridoo, so I had to make them out of PVC,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, which is a good process, making your own instrument and then playing it, tuning it. That kind of stuff. I don't think it would go well if I tried that, but for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly didn't go well at the start. I had to have a strong vision to learn circular breathing, but um, I did that on the way to work. So every day I would catch the train to and from work. So I continued in that same job doing auto repairs, but I'd go to my boss's house, pick up the vehicle, um, and I'd do that by catching the train. And uh, so I would walk to the station. So I'd play and practice my circular breathing, the didgeridoo, while I'm walking along. Got some very strange looks. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about that. I mean I can
2: barely do two things at once. You're playing while walking. Yeah. Did you ever bump into something?
0: <laughs> Not really, but um, it's it's quite difficult walking up a hill, exerting yourself and circular breathing at yeah, the same time. Yeah, but now this
2: circular breathing yeah. is that like through the nose and I mean how does this work?
0: Um you yeah, you draw air in through your nose while continuing to push air out of your mouth. So it's initially a process of using your cheeks Puffed out cheeks to push the air out while you breathe in your nose. Um, So an exchange happens of air. So So you just got to practice to get this. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually you get to the point of what's called diaphragmatic breathing, Uh where the exchange takes place in your lungs. So you don't actually need to push air out with your cheeks anymore. So Um, you're doing this walking with a PVC
2: pipe. That's right. And then you get on the train play on the train play on the train I, i'm
0: just wondering what the people on the train are <laughs> <thinking about laughs> yeah same get some very strange looks um but some people will enjoy it listening to it uh and it was good because it, it, it kind of dropped that fear fear of man type guard huh. that i had up you know but you like, felt
2: the lord led you to explore this instrument yeah yeah Our guest today is Mike Lane from the musical group called River Tribe. As we just heard, at a low point in his life, he decided to drop everything and learn how to play the didgeridoo. Amazingly, that went on to be tremendously successful as he goes on to tour the world. We're going to find out all about that and how he is now combining music and ministry. All that and more when we return right here on Real Faith.
1: Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith, conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au.
2: Welcome back. I'm Eric Skadabo and our guest today is Mike Lane from the musical group called River Tribe. And As we're hearing, they have a unique blend of electronic ambient sounds combined with a didgeridoo. Before the break, we heard how at a low point in his life, he decided to drop everything and learn how to play
0: the didgeridoo.
2: Now we're going to find out what happened next in his life.
1: Decided
0: to go out on the street and start playing. The problem with that is I didn't have any equipment. So I made a list, including I didn't have didgeridoos still, um, or genuine timber ones. So I made a list of everything I needed to go busking on the street. So I need battery amps and microphones and didgeridoos and... Uh, I wanted some drums So I need some African drums So I made a list of everything I needed And um, just started praying for it First thing was my brother gave me two didgeridoos So I got started from there Other stuff was given to me I was able to sell some equipment And buy some other things that I needed Put the kit together And then just started going out on the street uh, Initially at Queen Victoria Market Amongst other places St Andrew's Market Outside of Melbourne Um Within a few months, I'd applied for Melbourne Fringe Festival and we'd booked shows at Melbourne Town Hall. I was still solo, although I had other people kind of jamming with me. I managed to put together a six-piece band and a 90-minute wow. show. Out of um, We wrote some tracks and put some other stuff together and did these shows and that's what kind of kicked us off as a band. So what was your big break? Uh, we were playing on the street in 2000, uh, at Vic Market again. Just a couple of us on that day, myself and, uh, one of the original members, David Gleason. And, um, we were spotted by Jimmy Wong, this kind of cool Singaporean dude who ran Singapore River Festival. And he said to us on the street, he just said, I'll pay you 5,000 American to come and play at my festival. And, um, at that time. In Singapore. They, yeah. So at that time, five grand US was 10 grand Australian. So um, wow, we were like, wow, this is awesome. So we told the other guys we were going. There's four of us at that time. And in the meantime, we got booked to play at the Sydney 2000 Olympics, mm-hmm. right in the Homebush Stadium precinct. We were booked by the Sydney Olympics Organizing Committee. Plus, we signed up with More Than Gold, which are a Christian outreach organization that go to Olympics all globally. Mm-hmm. And so we did a bunch of gigs, street gigs with them as well. So we kind of combined the two. We had these professional gigs that we were paid, you know, good money for to play at the Olympics site. And then we're out on the street in different locations with a Christian outreach organization. And that just kind of grew from there, the exposure. Yeah. Uh, well, at that time, we, there was an intro concert for the More Than Gold thing at the Homebush Stadium. So it was a Christian music focused concert. We played at that. The headliner for that was Rebecca St. James, and so she was there. She's got seven brothers and sisters, and her parents were there. Her dad, Dave Smallbone, manages her, mm-hmm. and um, so we met her and her family. Actually, we didn't meet Rebecca, but we met the family. and David approached us on the night and said, "I really like." He, he just heard a sound check. He didn't hear oh, his wow. player. Like- it was a dreadful sound check. Too. <laughs> <laughs> he heard something that he that he liked, and um, said, "I want to talk to you guys further." And so later on that year we got an email from his A and R guy, Ainsley Grosser, who's a Perth boy. He's um big time Nashville producer these days mm. um and said, We want to offer you a deal, record deal and Wow. They knew we were touring internationally by then and um he said, Look, organise for you to come to Nashville and meet meet the crew and sign a contract.
2: Wow. And so, then from there concerts all over the world
0: uh our touring with EMI records with uh David Smallbone and Rebecca was mainly on mainland US so we toured at one point we toured 48 states wow yeah it was crazy um we did 14,000 miles on that tour uh in the in the Smallbone family Chevy van wow. and so and we did about three tours like that um with Rebecca and with Chris Tomlin Uh, A lot of other big artists, too numerous to name at this point. But, yeah, we had a great time touring with them. That touring didn't really support us professionally. Like, we're living off CD sales, Mm -hmm. which weren't always great when your merchandise table's out by the toilet (laughs) (laughs) at a venue (laughs) because the headlining
1: artists get the prime
0: positions. Oh, is that artwork? But um, fortunately... They actually put us on before the concert time, official concert time start. So they would open the doors and we'd start playing when the doors open. So you're kind of so, the introduction yeah, music before. Yeah, we're kind of the warm up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. While people are coming and finding their seats. Yeah. So often when we were finished, you know, the auditorium only be one third full. Sometimes it was full, but most of the time oh, okay. you know, it was still filling up. But the huh. great thing about that was there'd be an uh, intermission and at that intermission we'd meet a lot of people and oh okay sell a bunch of CDs and that kept us going yeah and that was our MO at festivals you know we did a lot of big street festivals yeah. some of the biggest in the world like when yeah. we did in montreal it was like a million people come to it now
2: so. going back to your personal crisis yep you felt the lord led you to play the didgeridoo mm-hmm. which you've told me before we started to record you no longer play <laughs> that instrument that's but right why do you think what was god's plan in all this
0: I just think God puts people in particular little niches where he wants his truth and love to go out, you know. So we're on the street in the marketplaces, you know, and I just felt that's that's where the gospel's at its most powerful is in the highways and byways markets where mm-hmm. people were doing food shopping or shopping yeah. for arts and crafts, that sort of thing. And we would surprise people with our sound because we weren't just a busker with an out-of-tune guitar. We were... <laughs> You know, we had all this technology and had had this amazing production going on on the street. Now, a lot of people, when they feel called
2: to do music ministry, Mm -hmm. it's the music and the lyrics, you know, singing about the Lord that ministers to people. Mm -hmm. Whereas it sounds like you're ministering through music, but also it's about the people you meet, the interpersonal relationships. Is that
0: correct? It was all about the interactions with people. I think I, I kind of copped out of it for a number of years by going, Oh, well, we're pre evangelism. You know, we get CDs into people's hands and hopefully, and we pray over them. And hopefully that will bring healing and joy into their lives as they listen to them. And there, there'll be a gospel message in there somewhere. That was kind of my intention. But part of my intention was really to cop out from really speaking up, speaking the gospel directly into people. And it took me some years to just get over that fear of or embarrassment of the gospel itself, Mm. you know, trying to fit in, try to be commercially viable. Which is always
2: tempting to do
0: because then you get a bigger audience. Yeah, But now what are you saying?
2: Now you're not like that?
0: No, I'm far more direct, you know. Um, We had a gap in the band from 2006 up to 2011. We had five years off. It started as one year off and became five. During that time, I I started prayer walking, Mm. and I'd go up to two, three hours a day through the Dandenong Ranges Prayer walking, and just learning how to communicate with the Lord. And I was sitting on this rock, and I'd sit on this rock above the city and pray over the city. And at one point, I I'd been listening to Roland Baker a bit, and I said, "Lord, won't you send me to the people of Africa? You know, I could I could be a great evangelist in Africa and these places." And the the reply came back really clearly it was, "How could I send you there when you haven't learned to love the people down there?" And I was like, wow, that was like a slap in the face and um, a kind of a wake-up call. So I just started going, hanging out on the street. I had to learn to love those people, mm. and um, I, I really did. So we we would just sit on the street and pray. We wouldn't chase after people. or, or Occasionally we did if we felt a strong leading to do it. Someone walked past. Um, and people would come to us, and they'd just start telling us their story. Wow. Mm. And very broken, very destroyed lives. And we just started praying for people, got onto the fact that you could lay hands on people and they'd get healed miraculously. So we started giving that a try and saw some amazing things happen. Wow. So it was a great time. It was a real education time in terms of what God really wanted to do with my life in terms of the gospel and what power we had available to us. And Um, does that tie in with the music? Well, I brought it back in, in in the sense that when we started playing again, um, Luke Hawkins came on board with me, and we're still a pair now, and we started doing uh, Mind Body Spirit Festival in Melbourne. It's Which is kind
2: of a new age type oh, Yeah, very much so, yeah. But because so, you have this instrumental music that's relaxing,
0: yeah. you're able to go in there as yeah. Christians. Yeah. And we'd done that festival in the past, but never said anything, just played the music, sold CDs said hi to people that sort of thing so kind of played it incognito when we went back in at that point um, the music was simply a vehicle to create an environment where I could begin to call out words of knowledge over people in the audience I'd send someone out with a microphone or I'd walk around with a microphone myself while the music was playing and um, so I'd say okay I'm hearing someone's got a shoulder injury in their right shoulder who's that put up your hand and um, so someone during a music concert yeah, during wow. our performance, which is where the ambient music was great, we could just put on this ambient stuff and leave the stage because the track would go for ten minutes on the back, <laughs> on the backing track. And you might have a didgeridoo player just <laughs> chugging away on the didgeridoo. Yeah, you can't do that and with I, every kind of yeah. music. Yeah, I could walk around for ten minutes, but being a DJ, you know, the tracks would run out, and I would get feedback from them on the spot. So wow. we, we really prayed with the expectation that something would happen right away.
2: So that's what you've been doing recently. Yeah, that type yeah. of combining music with ministry.
0: That's right. Yeah, just practicing and learning how to just be much more direct with the gospel. Well, that's fantastic.
2: Um, so you've really gone on a growth experience, from yeah. Just being instrumental to now being intentional yeah. about
0: yeah and ministering to yeah, people. Now it's whole of life. It's not mm-hmm. just when we we're performing. You know, that's what I've had to learn. Mm-hmm. So I'll be in Bunnings. You know, and people just come up to me and go, "Oh, my wife's dying of cancer." Oh wow! Or, you know, the number of people who just come up to me and start talking, and I think it's that spiritual availability. Like, I can't really explain it, except that if you prayed up and available, and just moving in relationship with God, people come and tell you their story mm-hmm. because they have a need. You know, and it's just amazing the times in public where I've just laid hands on people. Just ministering to people yeah. And I'll tell you these incredible things that they're going through And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to have to pray for this guy (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: unfortunately Our time has quickly gone by But it's been great to hear your story It's been a blessing to chat with you, Mike Lane And so I think it's appropriate that we end with One of your all-time best songs Most famous songs with River Tribe Appropriately called The Blessing Yep. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today
0: You're welcome, thanks for having me
2: Our guest today has been Mike Lane from River Tribe, and here's the song, The Blessing.